I'll unmute myself. Good morning again. Good morning to those here. Good morning again to those tuning in online. Would you join me in opening up a Bible to 1 John chapter 1? Little book of the Bible tucked way near the end. If you want to use a pew Bible, it's page 1021. I gotta be honest, it's it's um, amazing that we're able to gather back in here again, and and, and also a little bittersweet. Um, it's good to be back. It's good to sing. It's good to hear voices behind me. It's good to see people even halfway, and I'm a little, I can feel my heartbeat just a little more nervous than normal of of preaching. I got way too used to just being me and the camera and AJ hanging in the back, um, and uh, and so it's great to be back. While also um, you know, just the, a, a little bit of grief of just that this is as good as it can be for now. And, and know that we're just going to keep moving forward, small steps. We've been really grateful to the Lord and to one another in this church for how we have navigated this together and taken small steps uh, to get to the point where we are. And um, I, just, you know, as obvious and maybe as cliche as it might sound, um, when I think about these last six months and the constant change that has happened, uh, not only in the greater culture, but in my own heart, um, I still feel like I'm still trying to unravel some of the things that, um, that has been happening within me that's just been difficult and trying to navigate constant change, constant adjustment, um, that it, what, it has become more clear for me more than any other time in my life how the only thing that has sustained me in this season of constant change is the unchanging, steadying rock of God's Word. And it's amazing. This thing reads just like it did in 2019. And, and, and Lord willing, it's going to read just like it will in 2021. Nothing else is the same in 2020. But every time I opened up this book, whether uh, to proclaim God's word or in my own personal study in time, it has been just this force, this steadying, sustaining force for me. And so whether you have been watching online for the last six months, um, again, including all of you tuning in at home right now, or you've been at a lawn gathering, uh, we've had a family worship service again this morning, we'll have an evening one again tonight. Wherever we've gathered, online or in person, we've always begun our time in God's Word together with, hey, please join me in opening up your Bible. And I especially am excited for this morning because anytime we start a new book, I feel like a little kid on Christmas. Like, I love the idea of saying, like, open up to chapter 1, verse 1, and let's go. And back in January, we started in Exodus 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. And the world changed by the time we got to chapter 40 in August. And now we begin this book of 1 John, which will take us, Lord willing, to around Thanksgiving. And only the Lord knows what the world's going to look like around Thanksgiving in a lot of different ways. But what we do know is that wherever we gather... We're going to start by opening up this word together. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first four verses. It, it, it's almost like a prologue to the letter as a whole, this kind of introduction. Uh, but first, I just want to answer the question, why First John? Why are we doing First John as a church? Um, really, there's, there's practical reasons, there's theological reasons, and then there's pastoral reasons. So real quickly, um, practically, uh, it is our rhythm of, of preaching expositional sermons through books of the Bible. That's our primary rhythm here at Grace. And, and really just practically, we want a balanced diet as a church. 
So, so we want to rotate Old Testament and New Testament, right? The Old Testament, the, uh, the books that flow to Jesus, New Testament, the, the ones that describe the life of Jesus or flow from the ministry of Jesus. We want to rotate genres from historical narrative to epistles, which are letters, wisdom literature, prophecy, gospel. And that in hopes of all together, as you think about uh, your time at Grace Church, big picture over the long haul, our preaching ministry is going to provide us a balanced diet of the whole counsel of God. So practically, we were in Exodus for a long time, so now we're going to the New Testament, and we're going to do 1 John. Second, theologically, um, this epistle, which many of you know and that the rest of you will find out in the coming weeks, is short. It is four or five chapters. I'm even blanking on it right now, but it's short. It's five chapters long, but it is as jam-packed as of five chapters, as you will find in Scripture. It's going to go deep into doctrinal distinctions that have been and continue to be vital for the church to remain faithful, to combat false teaching and false teachers. You know, Grace Church um, turns 74, I think, next month. So next year is our 75th birthday as a church since this church has been planted in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And its commitment to true and faithful doctrine has included the careful and deep and clear teaching of that sound doctrine to each generation since 1946. And this, just theologically, another step for us, as long as God has us here to be the next link in the chain of God's church, to be faithful to God's word and to combat any false teaching And the false teaching now may be a little bit different than 1946. It's certainly different than the first century, but God's word will remain throughout. And then third, pastorally. 1 John, more than any other letter in the New Testament, is written to give assurance. Assurance to believers. Throughout these few chapters, there's going to be various signposts throughout that help answer the question, how, how do I know I'm saved? Or somebody close to you asks you, how, how can you know you're saved? Like, how can you really know? Like, you say you know, but can you really know? How do we know as a church that we're on the right path? Is true assurance possible? Even before a pandemic traversed the globe, There were plenty of studies coming out often that described the anxious age in which we currently live in. And that's only been turned up to like 11 um, since a pandemic began. But what we know as a church and what we need to double down on throughout this series is that the only antidote to anxiety is assurance. And the deepest assurance we can have is found in Jesus Christ. So 1 John is going to provide that for us. How can you know? So with that set up, let's go. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are, bearing, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, this is one of the more well-known, maybe more famous introductions to a book of the Bible. And to be honest, one of the reasons why it's such a well-known introduction is because it's kind of strange. It doesn't start like normal letters start. In general, certainly like, not like other letters begin in the Bible. Um, for those students who've been going back to school in the last couple of weeks, um, if you were to write your first English paper this fall like this, with a paragraph that is kind of all bouncing around and a little bit repetitive, uh, that teacher would pick it apart with red pen. It would be a, like a crime scene. There'd be so much red all over that paper. Like, like that is unacceptable, giving it back. Even, even as I'm saying now, I feel like I'm getting blank looks like, what's a red pen and teachers and person and paper? I just don't know any of that. My first old moment as a preacher, thank you very much. Um, okay, so you're on Google Docs, and they send it back, and you got like strike throughs, and you got like question marks all in the corner, and like, no, no, this is written terribly. But this is a prologue to a letter that might at first seem twisted, kind of wordy, um, unattached, but upon closer look, my hope is this morning, we're going to find this is a brilliant introduction. And here's how we're going to take a closer look. We're going to ask three questions about this letter, about this prologue to a letter that you know, introduces the whole thing. Number one, who wrote it? Number two, what's it about? What's the subject? And then number three, why was it written? So that's our outline for this morning. Who wrote it? What's it about? Why was it written? So number one, who wrote it? To start, you might have noticed in that introduction that the author never self-identifies himself. It's not like Paul or Peter who start their letters um, in the probably what was the typical way in this time um, with the kind of pleasantries of the day. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ, grace and peace. Or, or Peter, a slave to Christ, grace and peace. Here, no identification. And yet the authorship has never seriously been questioned. And we're tipped off to it because it's called 1 John. And the earliest um, post-biblical writers and leaders of the church were in uh, uniform agreement that this was written by John, the son of Zebedee, one of the original 12 apostles, and the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. If you look ahead in your Bible just a couple pages, you'll see after 1 John, there's a 2 John and then a 3 John. And even in those, he doesn't define himself by name, but he gives himself a little bit more of an introduction by referring to himself as, quote, the elder. And the reason why John did not explicitly identify himself, you ready for this, is because he didn't have to. Everybody knew who was writing this letter. Here's why. John was the only apostle who was not martyred for his faith. The only one who was not killed for proclaiming his faith. Which is to say, he's the only one who lived to become an old man. And this letter is dated between um, 85 AD and 95 AD, in that 10-year stretch, which is over 50 years after Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So to put that in perspective, it's 2020 this year. It'd be like John writing the letter in 2020 when Jesus was crucified in 1970. 
50 years have passed. It's about 25 to 30 years after Peter and Paul were put to death in Rome. So again, perspective, it's like if they were killed in 1990, He's writing this now in 2020. 30 years have passed since even those two men were martyred. And so by the time this letter is being written, he was the only surviving apostle left. If he was a teenager during the time of Jesus' ministry, that puts him somewhere in his 70s or maybe even early 80s by the time he's writing this. And he is the most well-known and respected Christian in the world. One commentator wrote that John didn't mention his name since his authority and standing in the church at the time was so clearly known. He didn't have to. I, I don't even know if we have kind of common day, uh, modern parallels to this, but I, I think of the way we might view uh, World War II veterans today. As of last year, so this percentage is probably even lower than it was last year, only 2% of those who served the United States in World War II were still alive in 2019. One of which, by the way, is a member of Grace Church. Carl Parshall turned 99 last month. And I know if we get to a place where we can start gathering again, the man will be at the side door giving you your bulletin and probably a comment on the way. Um, and he can because he served in World War II and he's 99. Um, but we have these respected men and women who are few and far between, and in another decade, in all likelihood, there'll be no surviving veterans of World War II. And when that comes, only, it will only survive in memories and in history books. There will be no more eyewitnesses to World War II. Likewise, John was, if not one of, the last eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, certainly amongst the apostles, but maybe amongst anybody still alive. So when John sits down to write a letter, you know that letter's coming. He doesn't have to self-identify. But even beyond that, the style of 1 John is so similar to the gospel of John, including a very unique prologue. John's gospel begins like no other gospel does. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And all throughout the gospel and his letters, you have this similar um, redundant words and images like um, focus on word, focus on light and darkness and belief in eternal life and love. And John wrote in total five books in the New Testament, and he's the only biblical author who wrote about the past, the present, and the future. He wrote about the past in his gospel that looked back on the life and ministry of Jesus. He wrote in the present these letters to these churches in Asia Minor, serving as an elder in the city of Ephesus, writing to the churches in that area, exhorting them on how to live, how to remain in the truth. And then John wrote Revelation, the final book of the Bible about the future, the story of how God will consummate all of history. And Jesus will eternally reign as king of the new heavens and new earth. Only author to write about past, present, and future. So think about it this way. As we dig into this passage, think about it this way. Outside of the Christian faith, outside of Christianity, what is the one topic that you are most passionate about? What's the one hobby that stirs you for him the most? What are you most passionate about in this world or an industry? Now think in your mind of the person that is alive who is the most well-known and respected person on that topic. You have he or she in mind? What if that person wrote a new book that came out today? 
Would you read it? If David McCullough writes another history book, I'm reading it. I don't even need another topic. Right? I wrote, I read about the Wright brothers. I don't even care about the Wright brothers or flying. And I read it and it was amazing because Dave McCullough wrote it. What's the one thing that that person writes it, you're reading it? What would it be like if we treated First John like that over the next nine, ten weeks? John's still alive and he wrote us a letter. So let's read it. So that's who wrote it. Number two, what's the subject? What's this about? John's primary topic in this prologue and in the letter as a whole is simply, yet fundamentally, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said of, this, of these four verses, it is the greatest majesty combined with the greatest simplicity. The first word in the letter, again, I would never recommend starting a letter this way, but he starts with that. That, and then, and then it connects with the final phrase of verse 1, the word of life. John loves calling Jesus, the divine son, the word. Again, the intro to his gospel, in the beginning was the word. And now in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, connecting to the word of life. These, these, these two introductions connect all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where the start of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. Like, if there's four words for you to memorize in the Bible, it's Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. If you just stop there, if you believe in that, then the rest of the Bible is true. If it's true that in the beginning, God, then everything that comes after it should be listened to. All things created by God, through God, for God, and then he decides what is good and right and holy. And so John kind of gives a nod to Genesis 1-1, both in his gospel and now in 1 John, in the beginning, and that which was from the beginning, Jesus, the eternal word of life. Okay, so hang with me here. Look down at your Bibles. After verse 1, if you are reading ESV, there's a dash. And then there's another dash at the end of verse 2, which means what? It means that verse 2 is a parenthetical statement to verse 1. It's kind of an aside. He says word of life, dash, and then explains the word of life. And then he'll come back in verse 3 and pick up the line of thought from verse 1. Who's confused? All right, so seeing it written makes it a little bit more confusing. But we do this in conversation all the time. You're talking about one thing, and, and your mind, something you say triggers um, a thought, and you do a little bit of an aside, and then you talk, and then you go back to the thought that you began with. So if somebody said, hey, how was your trip to Wisconsin, like going and seeing Rochelle's family this summer in Wisconsin, and I say, oh man, it was great getting out there. Rochelle and the kids got there for six weeks. We drove out there, which, by the way, driving with four kids under the age of like five, don't recommend it. But you know what? You can't really fly either, so you got to get out there somewhere. But we went out there, and I talk about my trip, right? That's an aside, our asides usually loop around, kind of confusing, ruins the flow of a conversation. But John's aside was, in, aside was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can't say that. But verse 2, it's not a throwaway statement. It tells us something. And it tells us when he writes that that life that was made manifest, that which we've seen and heard, testified to and proclaimed to you, 
the eternal life which was made manifest to us. John is saying right at the top of this letter that Jesus was revealed. That's what it means to be made manifest, that he was revealed. The answer to the question, the most important question that this world faces, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That, that, that answer is not found. It's not discovered. It's not made up. It's not constructed. It's revealed. It's truth that exists outside of our opinions. No one decided who Jesus was. Jesus was revealed to be the divine Son of God. And this is why John loves referring to Jesus as the Word. As the Word. Because words are revelations of what is true. When you meet somebody new and you spend time with them, you you, you say, I want to get to know this person. It's a new neighbor. It's it's your son or daughter's new boyfriend or girlfriend. And you're like, I want to get to know them. What What do you mean by that? What are you looking to do? You want to speak with them because you want to hear their words. That's how you get to know somebody. People reveal themselves when they speak, for better or worse. Our words reveal who we are. Our words reveal what we love most. Our words reveal what makes us tick and get up in the morning. Our words reveal what we think about, how we feel, how we care about others. Words reveal And after a set amount of time of getting to know somebody, we decide, I like them, I don't like them, based upon their words or lack thereof. And in the same way, Jesus is the word who reveals who God is. Warren Wearsby, famous 20th century um, professor and theologian, says this about this verse, Quote, Jesus is the living means of communication between God and men. If a man is wrong about Jesus Christ, he's wrong about God. Because Jesus Christ is the final and complete revelation of God to men. He is God's word. He is the word of life. Jesus Christ. And this word is the word that John proclaims to the church. So then you jump down to verse 3. And that phrase down to verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That's the primary verb in this prologue. prologue. We proclaim also to you that connects back to verse 1. So if you're just thinking semantically, if you're an English teacher, you're like, I want to reword this prologue so it makes sense. Here's how maybe you would word it. This would be the start. We proclaim to you that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard that which we have seen, that which we have looked at, that which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So what's 1 John about? What are we talking about for the next 10 weeks? Primarily, the proclamation of the word of life, Jesus Christ. Number three, why is it being written? Why is it being written? I want want to give a short preview of four things we're going to see over and over again in this letter. Why did John write 1 John? Quickly, four reasons. Number one, to expose false teaching. To expose false teaching. Near the end of the first century, when this letter was being written, there was a new philosophy, a new worldview that was beginning to emerge throughout the Roman Empire, and it was called Gnosticism. 
It's a word we're going to see a lot in the next 10 weeks. Gnosticism. That's a soft G, if anyone's wondering. And it was a combination of pagan mysticism and Greek philosophy. And it would prove to be the most significant heresy that threatened the early church for the next 300 years. And just the beginning of it is starting to emerge here at the end of the first century. And like all false worldviews that last for that long, it had kind of different emphasis and kind of flavors over time, but making it hard to kind of really nail down what is Gnosticism. But the word comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And it was a, basically that salvation was through a secret, superior knowledge that only a few obtained. And its basic doctrine was that all that was physical is evil and corrupt. All that is spiritual is good. So your body is evil, but your soul is good. And this teaching began to mix in with the church and Christianity, and it wreaked havoc on the church for hundreds of years. And as it began to infiltrate, this is why it started to take root. Because the church, by 85-90 AD, was in its second or third generation. And, and so now this false teaching is beginning to gain ground. And this negative impact, again, was vast. And we're going to see it all throughout the letter, from the theological to the practical. But for this morning, the first claim of Gnosticism that John is confronting in his prologue is the claim that Jesus was not truly human. He couldn't be truly human because all bodies are evil. And Jesus can't have an imperfect body And so he either appeared to be human or he was a fallen human that the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism but then left him before he died on the cross. So those were the two major avenues of Gnosticism. He either appeared to be human or the Spirit came upon him and then left him. So you're like, okay, what's this mean? How's this relevant to today? Here's why it matters. In Gnostic teaching... You can't have a God who takes on flesh. They denied the incarnation, the belief that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And that's a doctrine. If you deny, it unravels the entire gospel message. Because if you don't have a Jesus who came in the flesh, sin cannot be atoned for. If sin cannot be atoned for, forgiveness for sin could not be offered. And if forgiveness for sin could not be offered and had, salvation is not on the table. So this is not just a theological head game. This is saying if you deny Jesus being a man, you lose salvation. You lose hope. There's no hope for us. So this sheds light on why John, still living, is such an important voice. Because he's the last one remaining who saw him, who was a personal eyewitness to Jesus during his ministry. These false teachers who are gaining notoriety, they're impressive, they're infiltrating the church with this false teaching. It's easy for them to teach this because they weren't alive in 1970 or in the 60s before Jesus died. But John was there. And so verse 1, that's why he's saying seemingly on repeat, that which we have heard, that which we have touched with our hands. Verse 2, that which was made manifest, we have seen. Verse 3, again, that which we have seen. John is saying, church, Jesus did not appear to have a body. He had a body. I touched it. 
Not only before his crucifixion, but after when he rose again, which is why John in his gospel is the only one who talks about Jesus after raised from the dead saying, touch these hands. Feel my side. This is not an appearance of Jesus in his soul. This is Jesus, a bodily resurrection. And when John says he was from the beginning, again, he's connecting to Genesis 1, John 1. He's meaning the beginning of eternity past, just like Genesis 1, in the beginning. Jesus was not created by God. Jesus is God. He was there at creation, for all things were made by him and through him and for him. There was never a time in eternity past when Jesus did not exist in his divine nature. And then he took on a second nature in the flesh when he was born in a manger. R.G. Lee, he's a famous pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, in the middle of the 20th century. He said this, I love this quote. Quote, Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but not a heavenly mother. Who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. Who was older than his mother, and who was as old as his father. John gets the point across in this letter, and he writes it to say he walked with Jesus. He's immersed himself in his ministry. And now he has spent the last 50 years of his life proclaiming Jesus to others. We have here a letter from an old, respected man of faith who after all these years, all the knowledge he's built up, all the life he's experienced, is still committing to a simple devotion to Jesus. That's number One, quickly, number two, he wrote this letter to increase fellowship. Verse three, we proclaim this Christ also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here he gives the first explicit reason why he's writing this letter, so that you might have fellowship with us. And I find it interesting that perhaps as much as any word in our Christian vocabulary Fellowship is the one that has grown increasingly thin in the way we think about it. Fellowship is a church word. We associate it with coffee and donuts before a class or a small group. That's fellowship. Let's be honest. We named our tile-floored basement that exists in every church built in the 20th century as Fellowship Hall. The tiled room is where the fellowship happens. But the word, at its core, means an intimate sharing in common of what's most important to you. Something that we don't necessarily just work for, but something that was made true for believers through the blood of the cross. It brings reconciliation, us with God and us with one another, theologically. We're reconciled. And then fellowship is the practical pursuit and outflow of that reconciliation that we experience. So I'll put it this way. Um, Believers can have true and real friendships in this world with others who are not Christians. I think we'd all say, I have real friends 
that I love who are not believers. But you can only have true fellowship with believers. And fellowship will last far beyond friendships, and they'll last into eternity when we, with one accord from every tribe, tongue, and nation, will glorify the Lord for all time. Think about this. You share fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ that you've never met before in this world that goes far deeper than maybe your best friend who's not a believer in this world. That's fellowship. That's what John is saying. We proclaim Christ to you so that in Christ we may have horizontal fellowship with each other as an overflow of our vertical fellowship with God, the Father, and the Son. And we're going to leave it there for now because this is going to be a major, major, major theme in the book of 1 John. He's going to run circles around it. He's going to keep going back to it. He's going to talk about fellowship and love for one another. And he's going to talk about something else. And he's going to do the same thing. He's going to do that on repeat in this letter. Number three, he wrote 1 John to promote holiness. This will be the central focus of our sermon next week when we finish the rest of chapter one. So just a short word here. But John is writing this letter to defend against the drift towards spiritual apathy amongst those in the church where holiness and a pursuit of obedience and right living according to his word is getting watered down over time for any number of reasons. Remember I said earlier that the church is now in their second or even third generation. And the combination of false teaching and, and, and being drawn into the things of the world is leading to just a general indifference amongst the church to the things of God to his good and right laws and decrees. Just apathy. Not leaving necessarily, not becoming an atheist, just not really caring about God's design for their lives. You know, we often hear about this with families who immigrate to the United States. You know, my grandparents both grew up in Norway, and they came across to Ellis Island and then to Staten Island, and, you know, very thick accent, very much into the Norwegian culture. Uh, but then you see second and third generations begin to assimilate into the new culture and, and away from maybe the cultural norms of their grandparents or parents. That my dad has a certain commitment to his Norwegian-ness. I don't even know what to say. And, and I, you know, we, we, we still got the flag, man. May 17th, Independence Day in Norway. Put that on your calendar. Um, but, but, like, ultimately, we're just not that much into Norwegian culture. We're the third generation. And it seems clear. I mean, when you talk about, you know, in countries and in the flesh, that's one thing. But in the spiritual kingdom of God, passing that to the next generation and seeing just the drift of holiness, the drift of right living, not really caring. That's what's happening. And so as we begin this book, I wonder if you were honest about your current walk with the Lord. If apathy towards obedience and holiness might explain where you are right now. Maybe it was something specific that sparked a questioning of your faith and, and as a result has watered down your passion. Or maybe it's been a result of this year and, and drawn out six months of isolation. We're not meant to be isolated this way. 
And, and the, the hardest thing about this pandemic that we've talked about a lot, lot of times, that in the church, when you're suffering, what you want to do most is gather. And it's so hard that the one thing you can't do is what we need to do most when we're suffering. And as a result, you know that your desire for holiness is less than it was in March. And maybe you know why, but maybe you're still trying to unravel what's really been going on in your mind and heart. But you just know you're not pursuing the Lord like you used to. Or maybe even more likely, maybe just beyond all that's happening, you're just bored with the Christian life. Other things are more enticing to pursue. Other things are more exciting. They're more exhilarating. You have friends that are in these other areas, and they just seem to be even more joyful than you. And you're just, I just want to, I want to put my primary time and energy and attention on these other things. And the relationship with Christ and the Christian life, it's just gotten a little, uh, lost its allure. In this letter, the Holy Spirit wants to draw you back. And here's what it's going to look like. It's not going to be by shaming you. It's not going to be by condemning you or commanding you or threatening you. But he's going to do it by reintroducing you to Christ in 1 John. To this Jesus who for the joy set before him saved your soul and called you to himself, to the Jesus who doesn't look at you today as a disappointment, but as one who he has come to restore. The ones that he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, I have come to give you rest. And I wonder if you'll allow the Spirit to do so over these next nine, ten weeks that he will stir your affections for him once again. So that flicker that remains will get fanned into a flaming inferno of passion that will lead to a pursuit of holiness once again. That's number three, last one. Number four, to complete joy. Verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I love John's plural pronouns to begin this letter. He doesn't say, I am writing these things so that your joy might be complete. I feel like that's the way I would probably write it if I was John. But no, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, which means this, and I think we overlook this a lot. Above all else, here's what John understands, that a believer's joy in Christ cannot grow unless their fellow brothers and sisters' joy in Christ grows as well. We often talk about my joy, I'm not experiencing joy, or I'm trying to pursue joy. When John shows us this is no individualized religion here that has become so commonplace. It's not just me and Jesus, that's all I need. Because when Jesus is the head of the church, the head of the body, you cannot have true joy in him without the joy of your fellow members experiencing that joy as well. It's a team sport. We are one body. 
And similarly, I don't think this joy is speaking of something that will just happen someday in the future. I don't think he's just saying, hey, when Jesus shuts this thing down, then our joy will be complete. But I think he's saying that there is a current joy that can be had, really had, really complete now. It's like when Paul writes in Philippians 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the mind of Christ. A relationship with Jesus shared in community with others is the only way to experience true joy that rises above all circumstances in this world. Do you have that joy? Because nothing can steal the joy of a child of God. This world can take our happiness We're all one phone call away from something wrecking us. We're not called to just be happy all the time. But joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives by means of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that presence is never taken away from the person who trusts in Jesus. And we'll be coming back to this throughout, but it's a good place to conclude, to conclude the introduction of 1 John. That assurance of being in Christ is rooted in joy. And true joy for the believer is never found in this world. It's never at the end of a paycheck. It's never at the bottom of a bottle. It's never found the morning after a one-night stand. It's never found in a political candidate. It's not found at an all-inclusive resort. And it's not within the acceptance letter to your favorite school. It's found in that which was from the beginning, which John has heard, which he saw with his own eyes, which he looked upon and touched with his own hands concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even an introduction to a letter, how edifying it can be, Lord. And I pray that we would understand these purposes of why it was written, why it was written to a church 2,000 years ago, and yet is just as applicable to the church today. Father, I pray that it would lift our eyes to you, Lord, the, the word of life. And even as we now respond in singing and prepare to take communion together to close, I pray that you would just fix our gaze upon you, stir our hearts for you once again, and let that live and and become an outflow to show a world that so desperately needs it. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.